Welcome to Agriculture in North Carolina, known around these parts as Ag and NC. Hello, farmers and friends. I'm Dan Miller. This program is all about our state's largest industry, agriculture. On this week's show, two topics making headlines in the ag world. The USDA just released the estimates for on-farm income in 2024. It's not what it's been the last couple of years. Jeff Turner and I will touch on that in a moment, and we'll get some perspective on a recent court case in Arizona that will affect soybean and cotton farmers right here in North Carolina. We're joined by NC State small grain and soybean weed scientist Wesley Everman. That in a few minutes. But first, I welcome my co-host, Jeff Turner, the COO of Murphy Family Ventures and member of the North Carolina Board of Ag and co-host on this program. How are things in Duplin County, North Carolina, Jeff? Things in D.C. are good. A warm weekend and spring's coming. I see daffodils up. Where's that? My Where's wife. that? Well, you know, my wife even sent a text. She said, I see a bee, and I said, one bee doesn't make a spring. We're a long ways out. <laughs> Let me share this, Jeff. we got two major headlines that have occurred in the last uh, four or five days when it comes to farming. Together, they, they don't make a great team, but... USDA's broad measure of net farm income forecast to drop 25% from 2023. Net cash farm income expected to fall significantly below the long-range average. Net cash income measures cash farm-related income from the year minus cash expenses and excludes changes in inventory, depreciation, and rental income from dwellings. Lower cash receipts, lower direct government payments, higher production expenses all play a role in the declining farm incomes. Progressive Farm Lead Analyst Todd Holtman says the USDA's lower net farm income estimates reflect the transition of going from corn prices above $6 and soybean prices near 15 in early 2023 to less than 4.50 for corn, less than $12 for soybeans today. And you have to think about what they said. You know, we we had probably record crops in a lot of areas and yeah. you started out with a fairly uh, decent per bushel price, market price, but again, when all this product comes onto the market, there's only one thing to do, and that's the price is going to go down. It is a commodity, and farmers deal in commodities, and and it's unfortunate. Now, that does mean lower input for livestock and poultry producers, but those commodities as well have been in the tank. So it's a two-edged sword uh, with regard to livestock and poultry producers. There appears to be all sorts of pressure. I mean, below the equator, it looks as though we're going to have a pretty decent crop this year. So that's that's going to put a, a pinch on the export market. And American farmers already are suffering from the fact that the American dollar is high. That doesn't help in exports either. And the other thing that uh, we, we lose sight of, the amount of money that it takes to operate a, a typical farm from year to year, I would say most row crop farmers have a what I will call a production line uh, of credit in order to pay for the inputs going into the fall waiting for the harvest. And we've got, it's not in my lifetime record, but it's, if you go back and look at recent history, when I'll say, what, the last 15 years, these interest rates are triple what they have been in some cases. You know, that just takes away from the bottom line. Way back when I was in college, I worked part-time for a contractor for the Farmers Home Administration checking assets, and spring seed and fertilizer loans were common with everybody. I'm not going to date you birthday-wise, <laughs> but you've seen a few. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a few high interest rate time periods. Yes, you have. I, again, I've said it, said it before, my first home loan was 18.5%. I thought I had a deal. In yeah. fact, it was a real deal in it at that time. So 
It's in my lifetime that a couple of times we've seen interest rates on credit cards approach nearly 30%, high 20s, maybe 30%. And I read headlines just over the weekend that we are seeing more credit card debt than we have seen. We have clients at the radio station that do bankruptcy filings, and they're like, everything's lining up, time's coming. I hate it. I'm afraid so. Uh, hopefully uh, the good folks in D.C. will lower these rates a bit and, and let's get on with business because it's killing us. It's killing a lot of folks, uh, especially agriculture. Last week in Arizona, a district court, strange that it would be Arizona. I don't see that as a row crop state, but a, a district court in Arizona removed registrations for three tools in the farmer's belt. Again, one more situation where you have courts deciding what's best for production agriculture. Coming up, we'll talk with Wesley Everman about this particular issue. Wesley is an NC State professor of small grain and soybean weed science. Look forward to that. Maybe he'll give us some options. This is Agriculture in North Carolina on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Thanks in part to Donna Byram with First Choice Insurance Partners. Call Donna today at 252-792-1189. Let her protect your yield so you can stay in the field. I'm Dan Miller along with Jeff Turner. And, Jeff, we're joined by Wesley Everman, North Carolina State Professor of Small Grain and Soybean Weed Science. Jeff Turner, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you guys today? We are well. Jeff's finally speaking without coughing. That's a positive for this week's show. It's much welcomed. <laughs> Crud's been going around, oh. that's for sure. I think it's out there everywhere. Wesley, we rang you up to talk about this Arizona court case, or really its effects of that. So let's get everybody up to speed. Let me present sort of a synopsis of what's taken place. A federal district court in Arizona ruled last week that the EPA did not follow the rules for new products or new applications of existing products set forth in the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodicide Act when it approved dicamba registrations for over-the-top use on dicamba-tolerant soybeans and cotton. The plaintiffs who brought the case to the court, National Family Farm Coalition, Pesticide Action Network, Center for Food Safety, and the Center for Biological Diversity, the plaintiff said the EPA did not offer a public notice or comment period before issuing the registrations. And the Arizona District Court found in favor of the plaintiff, and the court vacated the 2020 registrations for Extendamax, Ungina, and Tevium. The ruling appears to affect every state in which the products are registered, and thus could impact more than 50 million acres of dicamba-tolerant soybeans and cotton. Wow. You know, this is a product that's been on the market, I think, since 1967. You've got people who have already made plans and they've purchased soybeans and chemicals and that sort of thing for the upcoming season. Where, where does that leave our farmers? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty out there and a lot of anxious growers. They have a right to be. Like you said, this has been around a long time. It was a little bit of a surprise. We knew this might happen. Where we are now is in a little bit of a limbo game. We've got to wait and see how the EPA responds to this. But in the meantime, we do have solutions in case we cannot use dicamba over the top again. It's been a long time since I was involved in the chemical world, and my limited knowledge, very limited. Isn't dicamba and 2,4-D very similar? Yes, they're both in the same herbicide family in a broad sense. They both are synthetic auxin herbicides, so they mimic the natural growth hormones in the plant. In a very simple sense, they cause 
unregulated plant growth or cell growth and cause issues within that process that leads to plant death and susceptible species. The point here is is the over-the-top application, right? So pre-emergent, we're fine, the chemicals that are used for that process. The labels for the Extendamax, Ingenia, and Tavium are vacated. So those products, as the order stands, are no longer allowed to be used in any form. Hopefully, coming from EPA is some guidance on what to do with existing stocks and and how that may be used. In the order, they specifically talk a lot about over-the-top applications. There is a line that says those labels are vacated. In theory, we would be able to use dicamba still as a burn down pre-emergence before that crop comes up. Yeah, but you're going to use the same application method. You're just not going to do it on top of the soybeans. That makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. There isn't always a lot of logic in the law, uh, uh, as, as I think we've become more and more aware through different rulings and interpretations of law that has been put in place. Scientifically, there are, are several inconsistencies as you look through how dicamba has been labeled. For example, even with these products, we could apply till July 30th over the top of cotton, but we had to stop applications by June 30th on soybeans. They're planted right next to each other. And wasn't (laughs) there a time of day application as well? That is based in science. So they're really trying to avoid the times of day we have the most still air which can lead to an inversion. So if we have inversion, that spray particle will hang in the air a little bit more easily and then can be moved off target much more easily. So in an attempt to avoid as much off-target injury as there was, like, say, 2015 through 2018, the EPA said, let's adopt these time-of-day restrictions to avoid spraying in those prime inversion periods early in the morning, right before sunset, and hopefully reduce the amount of off-target injury. As I understand it, the EPA has uh, some authority under the uh, Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodicide Act to be able to allow this for a small period of time basically to clear the shelves. Is that a layman's way of saying it? Yeah, that is. That is one of the responses we're waiting to potentially hear from EPA uh, is their guidance on would they allow us to use existing stocks and use what's already been produced during this current growing season. And the American Soybean uh, Growers Association, as well as others, have come forth and urged the EPA to uh, appeal the ruling. And in the meantime, though, stay the ruling so that we could go forward in this growing season. Yeah, that... That's what everybody working with growers is hoping will happen, right? If we can get a stay and allow us to use these products for this year, give the EPA a chance to kind of dig in and maybe correct some of the the issues that were raised with this order, and then we move on from there. But, yeah, the grower groups have been very vocal, and they've been very involved in trying to encourage EPA to do some of these practices or put some of these orders from the EPA in place that will help our growers. Jeff Turner and I are chatting with Wesley Everman. 
on a topic that comes up more and more on this program, which is recent court cases that are affecting agriculture. More with Professor Everman on Ag and NC in just a moment. You're listening to Agriculture in North Carolina on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Thanks in part to the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, Got to Be NC. North Carolina's official business development and marketing program for agriculture. More than agriculture, it's got to be NC. I'm Dan Miller along with Jeff Turner, and we're joined by Wesley Everham. He's at NC State as a professor of small grain and soybean weed science, and he joins us on Ag at NC. Jeff, I know you had a thought as we went into break. I'm just a part-time pig farmer. <laughs> but common sense logic would tell me if I'm if I'm in the genetic modification business of with regard to seed to make my plant resistant to a to a herbicide, wouldn't it make sense to get a broad spectrum herbicide that's been on the market for almost sixty years? <laughs> you would think, well, that's one. It's been here for all these years. It's never been questioned. Here's a good one that we ought to modifying our seed to be resistant because that, that one's been around a, a long long time so it, it should be a safe one right yeah absolutely and you guys know as well as i do where a lot of this comes from it's not so much the herbicide as it's the technology right there's a lot of groups out there that are against gmos there's also groups out there that are against herbicides as a whole. And so they're using this opportunity and the press that was generated by the widespread off-target injury as an opportunity to bring on litigation and try to affect change, not through science, not through normal processes, but through uh, rulings and court cases. This herbicide's been on the market, as Jeff said, since the late 1960s. They tweaked it in the late teens, 2017, 2016, somewhere along in there, and correct me if I'm wrong on the science, watered-down version, if you will, that could be used OTT, over the top. The EPA, maybe they saw approval of that or registration of that a little bit different because it had been on the market before, and in this particular case, the plaintiffs got the EPA on a technicality. Yeah. Yeah, essentially, they got them on a technicality. So these formulations of dicamba, it's a little bit of science to set the stage. Dicamba is the active ingredient in each of these products. There's a an acid that is then formulated with salts into our actual product. And the only difference in these products is just how that acid is tied in. So there are different types of salts. There's DGA salt, a dicyclamine, um, and then there's, you know, BAPMA salts. And so all these different salt formulations carry different molecular weight. And the attempt was to make a heavier molecule and more stable. So it's heavier and more stable. So it's less likely to volatize. So dicambos can volatize. So you apply it to an area, whether it's soil or plants, that acid can disassociate from the salt and go into the atmosphere. By reformulating these for in these current label formulations, they were trying to avoid that volatility, reduce the amount that could be volatized and make it safer on more broad acre use with soybeans and cotton. Hmm. The original so you know, dicamba products are still good, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're still good. They just have 
a greater chance of volatility. So this is why when we do our trainings for oxen training, and you'll hear all the weed scientists say, do not use the generic original formulations of dicamba on these crops because they have a higher chance of volatizing and moving off target and becoming an issue. So the makers of dicamba or those products thereof, they get about the business of making the product safer so you can use it over the top. And that are penalized because of the technicality, but because they've got a safer product. Makes all the sense in the world to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's summed up pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yep. Conjecture, do you think any of the original product's going to find its way into over-the-top application? I really hope it doesn't. I'll, I'll be really upfront speaking to a group uh, today, and we still are going to do oxen training statewide um, through NC State, Charlie Cahoon and myself in conjunction with NCDA. But we really want to stress that growers should not use these generics, the original formulations, because it's just going to make a bad situation worse. We're more likely to see off-target injury. We're more likely to have issues. And all this is going to do is give more fuel for these groups to say, yep, see, these things are not safe. Go on. Even though they created a problem. Those yep. groups created this, this situation where someone might be inclined to do something off-label. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is one of the, the biggest challenges we have. You have a trait in, in crops, soybeans and cotton, for a herbicide that's no longer allowed to be used, but a different formulation of that is available. It really creates the environment for people to break the law. Really don't want to see people do that. It'll just shed us in a negative light. Like I said, it'll give more fuel to them, you know, and say, look, they they don't know how to apply these right. They don't follow the law, and EPA is not doing enough. The question then is, what are the next dominoes? They're not done. Getting dicamba is just the start, right? They're not done there. They're not going to stop. Is 2,4-D next? Is atrazine next? Is glyphosate next? Paraquat? We don't know, but they will continue to be under attack. And we need to make sure we make smart choices, follow our P's and Q's to make sure we don't give them any more ammunition than they have. The tools in the farmer's belt is under attack from the EPA. But in this particular case, the EPA, the EPA was actually uh, very lenient to make it to make it work to start with. And, you know, part of this was a there was a lawsuit around the labels back in 2020 mm-hmm. and EPA redid the labels in a way to get them out so that we could continue to use dicamba in 2020. And this is part of the problem as well, that they retooled those labels and rolled them out, and that's part of that not giving enough notice. Well, obviously you can see that uh, prior to 2021, you had a farmer-friendly EPA. They were trying to do something productive, it appears to me, to continue the process, and that may be what is really ultimately at the bottom of this lawsuit, politics as usual. Wes, what's the bottom line for growers? You know, to growers out there that are listening, we've got options to control our weeds. You know, we can do this with just a little bit of planning. You know, know what weeds you're going after. Choose your post-herbicides, glufosinate, PPO inhibitors for us, um, managing 
Palmer amaranth, common ragweed in North Carolina, and utilize our pre-herbicides. You know, those combinations worked before. They'll continue to work for us. And, you know, the sky's not falling. We've got challenges, but farmers are a resilient group, and we'll rise to that challenge. I'm confident. Wesley Everman, NC State Professor of Small Grain and Soybean Weed Science. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thank you. Have a good day. This is Ag and NC. Bill Carone Cars in Wallace is the only Chevy GM dealer in Eastern Carolina to be an AgPAC dealer, which means any farmer who buys a vehicle at Bill Carone is eligible for more than $30,000 in savings on products you probably already use, everything from tires to crop products. If you need to buy a vehicle anyway, why not check out the AgPAC difference? It's a flat world. takes nothing to drive to Wallace and pick up your car. Check out BillCaroneGM.com or head to Bill Carone Cars in Wallace. I'm Dan Miller. This is an Ag and NC Extra. I'm joined by Tony Barkley. Tony, I, I don't know what your official title is at Colony Tire. I'm Territory Sales Manager for the Rocky Mount Wilson area. Colony Tire is one of the few and long-time service of Ag on-farm and Ag, of course, at the many colony shops throughout eastern North Carolina. Colony Tire specializes in the Ag industry. We have crane trucks that are able to go out into the field. We have properly trained technicians who can take a piece of equipment of ours and lift up a quarter of a million to a million dollar piece of equipment for the customer and not damage anything and perform the job properly, safely, and efficiently. The farmer doesn't have to invest in that kind of equipment to be able to change his own tires. We can usually get in and out much faster than their own people can do it themselves. It's an art. I've done it. I broke a beat or two, and we still have calcium in tires now? As tires have progressed from bias to radial, if you take a radial tire and fill it up with any kind of fluid, You've just taken all the radial ability away from it. You've taken the flexibility away from it. You've taken the ability to run it at low air pressure. We, We discourage that. A lot of the guys still like to try to do it on some occasions because they need weight yep. with these heavy implements and all that they're running. Yep. What we try to teach them is that the new radial tires carry much more load, but we need to run them at as low a air pressure as possible. This gives them a much bigger footprint on the tire in the field, gives them better pulling capability, gives them better load capability, and also gives them less soil compaction. The ag tire industry has evolved and changed tremendously in the last 15 years. And not just for lug tires, tractor tires, combine tires, but also other equipment on the farm. If you've ridden down the highway and never gotten behind a big implement, a big disc, a big plow, a big sprayer, uh, when they spread out, they're 40, 50, 60 feet wide. Tires are required to carry a lot more than they used to. Colony Tire has a tremendous footprint in eastern North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina, especially on, on the farm side in those areas. Our meat and potatoes to the business, I guess, is the trucking industry. For that reason, most stores have two, three servicemen. But on the ag side, most stores have at least one guy that specializes in ag tires and changing those kinds of things out in the field. Sometimes just getting to the tractor or implement is challenging in itself. As far as colony goes, the farmer is is very important to us because they've got wheels on everything. So they're important to us, and we try to form a partnership where we're just as important to them. Tony Barkley, thank you. Y'all can find out more at colonytire.com. This is Ag and NC.
This information just out, a commercial turkey operation in Lenore County testing positive for high-path avian influenza. Positive sample first identified by the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services Veterinary Diagnostic Lab in Raleigh, and then confirmed by the USDA APHIS National Veterinary Sciences Lab in Ames, Iowa. This is the first case of high-path avian influenza in commercial poultry in North Carolina since 2022, when HPIA was found in nine poultry farms in Johnston and Wayne counties. Commissioner of Agriculture Steve Troxler says it's very unfortunate we've had the outbreak in North Carolina in a poultry farm at this time. But we've handled this before. We have trained in good partners, confident that we're prepared as any state would be to handle this kind of thing. Worth noting, HPIA virus is considered low risk to people, but highly contagious to birds. State veterinarian Mike Martin says under HPIA protocols, we'll begin testing flocks within a six-mile zone with our federal and industry partners. Let's take a look at the commodity numbers week over week. North Carolina's egg prices were steady on small, higher on the balance when compared to the prior week. Supplies were short to meet a fairly good demand. North Carolina weighted average price quoted for Thursday, February the 8th for small lot sales of delivered carton grade A eggs was 339.81 for extra large, 336.84 for large, 239.51 for medium and 152 for small eggs. Number 2 yellow shelled corn was 5 to 22 cents lower when compared to the prior week. Prices ranged mostly 4.23 to 5.18 at the feed mills, 4.08 to 5.18 at the elevators through Thursday, February the 8th. Number one yellow soybeans were mixed 22 cents lower to 2 cents higher, range 1194 to 1235 at the processors, mostly 1104 to 1189 at the elevators. Number two red winter wheat was 3 to 5 cents lower, range 559 to 577 at the elevators. That's this week's Ag and NC. Subscribe to the longer free podcast version on Apple or Spotify or the IBX Media app. Details on all that and links to our sponsors on our website, agandnc.com. Thanks to Ag Carolina Farm Credit, First Choice Insurance Partners, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. Ag and NC is a production of Interbanks Media, copyright 2024. For Jeff Turner and myself, Dan Miller, make it a great week.